And so July 14th, which was my 59th birthday, go in for surgery wearing my 2018 jacket because I think nothing is going to be as hard. And, you know, this jacket makes me brave. And I went in there and whoever it is who runs the universe took that jacket, wadded it up and said, hold my beer because you're going to die on the table and we are going to have to save you. Hello, podcast world. Welcome to episode 62 of Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. Janie John is strength personified and a force of nature. Janie stared down cancer twice and nearly died on the table during double mastectomy surgery on her 59th birthday, but lived to tell the tale and share her inspiring story. As a young girl, Janie dreamed of being crowned Miss America, but never imagined it happening in the cancer wing, rocking the crown with no hair on her head. After reviving her, they had to reattach her boob. She awoke in pain with her head swollen and her entire body connected to a sea of wires and tubes, surrounded by her mom, sister Angela, and her surgeon. Janie learned that isosulfan blue dye that they had injected into her tumor bed to trace back to the lymph nodes had caused her to go into anaphylactic shock. Three weeks later, on August 4, 2020, they went back in and successfully completed her surgery. Despite the enormous physical and emotional toll, Janie laced up her sneakers on 9-11-2020, just 38 days after, and ran the virtual Boston Marathon on her treadmill due to raging fires in the Lake Tahoe area near her home, no doubt securing her lifetime badass warrior status. Fast forward to January 2021. And Janie had been suffering more trauma from severe joint pain, high fevers, brain fog, and considered driving off a mountain and ending it all. She walked in that night, crying her eyes out, with no idea what her next step would be. When she logged onto Facebook that night, God was watching over her, and she noticed a running friend discussing breast implant illness, and as she read her symptoms, it was everything she had. Janie had the implants removed, and within four days, 80% of her allergic reactions were gone. On to the 125th Boston, her sister Angela had made her a promise in the ICU that she would qualify for her first Boston, and they'd run it together. And though Janie had almost no training leading in, she wasn't going to miss out, even if she had to walk most of the race. Janie felt like she was floating, and God was gently blowing her towards Boston. It was the most peaceful, happy, gratitude-filled 26.2 miles of her life, made more special by sharing it with her sister. Boston was the final healing and culmination of scratching and clawing her way back to me. Janie's story is one of remarkable resilience, and I'm so grateful she chose to share her experience here to pay it forward and help others. I hope you all enjoy the convo as much as we did. So let's dive on in and take a listen. Good afternoon, Janie John. Welcome to Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. How are you? I'm good. How are you? 
This is a long time in the making, my friend. You know, I've been trying to get you on here for a while. You were trying to, you were trying to put it off, but we finally pulled this together. Got my shit together finally. Yeah, I don't know about that. I think you've always had your shit together. So, um, tell the Run Chats audience a little about where you grew up. You know, where you living these days? Just a little background on yourself. So, I grew up in Southern California, San Diego, North County area. We. Um, we had a big avocado orchard. I have two sisters and a brother, and we spent our entire life outside in the avocado orchard chasing bees and gardening and just being outside kids. Um, it was awesome. Really great. Um, I now live um, between Reno and Lake Tahoe, and it's spectacular and I have four dogs and I work and I run. It's my life. I love it. So you've been outdoors on the land for your whole life. Orchard, I mean, avocado, farm, outside, running around, getting your hands dirty, doing some work. Where do you fall? In the, there's three. Where do you fall in the birth order? I'm two. I'm second. But my older sister and I are 11 months and two weeks apart. So we're the same age for two weeks. So we're super close. And then my brother is 12 months and one week younger than me. So we all have birthdays in July, a week apart. Love it. Love it. So team middle child, you know, we get, we get the toast for that. And uh, are you guys all close? You guys tight? We are. Love it. And now you're up, excuse me, voice is going a little, near the Tahoe area. So we have to do a little running camp out there. Maybe host a little run chats running camp and uh, we'll do some work out there, man. That would be fun. That'd be awesome. So tell everybody when you got involved with sports as a kid, kind of what your favorite sports were, activities, you know, in the grade school days, high school days, you know, what it was like for Janie John. So like I said, it was always outside. And then in junior high school, I started playing tennis. Um, and I was on the boys tennis team cause they didn't have a girls tennis team. Um, and then I played in high school. Um, I also had a boyfriend in high school who was a track star. He was a, all CIF or whatever they you know called it. Um, went on to UCLA, um, but was this superstar in the San Diego area and he run track. And so I thought, Oh, well maybe I should do that. And so I, <laughs> I decided I would try the hurdles and um, the 1500. And that was just a complete and utter shit show because I really didn't want to do it for me. I was doing it for him and his dad. And I was going to be the girlfriend that, you know, ran with him. And um, yeah, it was it was disaster. It was disaster. I almost broke my knees on the hurdles. And then I was at a big track meet, I don't know, in San Diego somewhere. And I had gone with him and his dad and I was supposed to run the 1500. And I did, I started and it was hot and it was miserable and I was undertrained and I didn't want to do it. And so the girls were almost starting to, to lap me. I was so, I was so slow and I just thought, fuck this. And I just ran off and hid under the bleachers. And to this day, I really don't know how I thought that was going to work out, right? Like, as if my boyfriend and the dad weren't going to come and say, what, what are you doing? Right? 
or the coaches weren't going to come find me and just rip me a new one. Um, so anyway, that was the, that was, that was the extent of my track career in high school. So I don't know. I just, I run for fun. Um, I went to university of Oregon for my first year and ran a lot up there just, you know, on the trails and, um, I wasn't on any team or anything, but, um, just ran. And then I, I don't know. I was, I dabbled in it for a long time, 10 Ks, you know, half marathons, whatever. Um, but I would go in and out. Then I'd go back to tennis, play tennis a lot. I was always doing something. That's easily the best running high school story anyone's told on run chats at this point. So the challenge will be laid out for all future guests if anyone can top that story, because there's simply no fucking way that story can be topped. Disappearing under the bleachers. I'm out of here. Chicks might be lapping me. It's hot. I don't want any part of this action. I'm totally out. And now fast forward to the future, a total badass warrior who wouldn't dream of quitting anything. So it's just absolutely the most perfect dichotomy, the greatest story ever. And, you know, trying to hide out from coach, boyfriend and her and, and dad. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. You really weren't all in on the running scene at that point at hurdles. Like, yeah, anybody could get broken on hurdles. I still have no idea when I watch the Olympics, watching Sydney McLaughlin and these hurdlers just like rip. 400 meter times that none of us could even dream of running a 400 that fast. You know, if we were running down a cliff, we couldn't run that fast. And they're, they're running it with the hurdles in there with such precision, but that is epic. So let me go back to your tennis now, because I'm a big fan of tennis as well. My roommate in college was the number one singles player and we competed at everything. And when I mean everything, it was pool, billiards, video games, girls, you name it. That's just the way you know, kids roll, certainly college age, testosterone fueled days when it's like you have to beat, you know, the people that you were closest to at anything. And he was just a stud in tennis. So I have to know, were you one hand backhand or two hand backhand? One. One. Love it. Yeah. Because I think I remember you mentioned that Chris Everett was your favorite. So I'm surprised because Chrissy was rocking the two hand backhand. And I tried, yeah. but I just wasn't down with it. Cool. And I had awesome serve. My serve was things of legends <laughs> and my overhead. I think it's because I have like albatross arms and I'm tall. So yeah, my overheads and my serve were crazy. I actually broke a teammate's nose um, when I lived in Ohio and I was playing. I was probably 30 years old. So I, it was an adult woman. It didn't go down really well at the club. The competitive streak does tend to come out in these in these tennis points leagues. It comes out, you know, when you're playing mixed and you're playing doubles and you got certain people maybe you might have some battles with along the way that are not on the courts, but just kind of make their way out there, you know, when you play. So are you still playing today? No, I haven't played in probably 10 years, maybe. All right. We'll work on that. I got to get my rackets out of retirement also. I don't get- I live I live at a country club where we have golf and tennis and but I like I just have to squeeze the running in. I I can barely fit the running in with work and all that stuff. So for now it's no tennis. Yeah. Look, it's tough. We when we get our free time, whatever amount we get served in our direction, pun intended. 
Um, we got to queue it up for what matters the most. And, you know, right now running's in the center of your universe and has been for a long time. So that's what you do. Um, but the other sports, I mean, I just have the time of my life getting out on the golf course, playing a lot of charity outings and playing golf as much as I can. And it's just a great break from everything else I do that I do so hyper competitively and just want to be at the top of my age group or make the world age group championships, you know, with golf, man, I could just go out there and just drink and just crack jokes all day and have friends throwing tea markers at me in the middle of my backswing to see if they can rattle me. And it's like, that's all you got. Come on, man, we could do better than this. Let's go. Um, so yeah, it's great that you, um, you have the other sports that you're really good in and, and, you know, it helps us, you know, playing on team sports, you know, even though tennis people may not think of as a real team sport, but hell yeah, it's a team sport. I mean, you're playing your own matches as a singles player, but you know, always on a, on a team, you have doubles as well. And those points can make the difference between winning matches or not. I mean, did you enjoy singles more or doubles more? Um, I love both. I, I didn't really have a preference. I mean, when I had, a, when we had a great group of women, you know, to play doubles, that was super, super fun. Um, yeah, I, I loved it all. Good stuff. So let's get to the age where you first, you know, get into running, you know, post, post-collegiate, you know, you start doing some running. And of course, the idea always comes for, if we're going to do a run, why not do a marathon? So tell us a little bit about that, how that got started for you. And, uh, you know, what, what your training was like when you first got, got involved with uh, distance running. Uh, so I had moved to Ohio with my first ex-husband <laughs> um and i wasn't i wasn't working at the time and so i decided okay i'm going to train for my first marathon and um we lived along the lake of cleveland um lake erie and it was just beautiful the fall weather um oh my gosh it, they had just beautiful running paths so that really made me want to get out there and do it. Um, but I didn't know anything about running. I mean, training or how much to run, how far to run. Um, and so I just ran all the time a lot without rest. And I was maybe 26 years old. And two weeks before the the marathon, I was going to run the Ann Arbor marathon. Um, I could barely walk. And so I finally went to the doctor and he's like, I'm going to put you in a cast because you're never going to stop. You're not going to stop playing tennis. You're not going to stop running and you're never going to sit down. So here's a cast, which like, so, <laughs> so he cast me and that lasted all of about 14 days. And I went to the basement and I literally cut it off. And I think I used like garden shears or some sort of big, scissor type equipment. And I just, my husband came down and said, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, I'm getting this off, which I did. So I didn't run Ann Arbor because I couldn't, but um, I just, I, I quit, I quit training for the, the marathon. Wow. So you you broke yourself because we all break ourselves and we have no idea what we're doing. Um, doing too much, not really following a plan, you know, really have no idea what's going on. None of us do when we're first starting out. Although for runners today who are new to the sport, 
there's just so much more information. It's just crazy how much information is available. There's literally 900 different quality free training plans available for download. Of course, there's amazing run coaching services and, and run coaching teams that you can be on that are competitive. There's so many Facebook training groups that you and I've met through and other people have met through, you know, so you have so much information available to you. But, you know, back when we were starting out, yeah, there was, you know, there was like different running books, but you have to go get a book and you have to actually open it up to a chapter and be like, where's the actual training plan in here? You know, you'd be like in the back of the book and it might be like, okay, run 30 miles a week. And it was like, what? Like there, there wasn't even any paces written down or anything. I mean, it was just you know, basically kind of fill in the blanks, seven miles one day, three miles. It didn't say anything about running harder or easier on certain days. Like, I mean, honestly, it was basically like make it up as you go along. So no shock that any of us broke ourselves or, <laughs> or broke ourselves more than once. But once again, winning with another story, cutting off a cast. This is classic. Gotta love it. Thank God. I thought you were going to tell me you ended up in the emergency room like you sliced open a blood vessel and, you know, as you were, you know, hacking off your plaster cast and, you know, your ex-husband had to take you to the hospital for, uh, you know, 40 stitches or something. No, no. I, I, was, care I was careful. Nice. You can can tell I'm very much of a type A individual. I don't, I don't sit to this, to this day. I don't sit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that part's ever been in question. Um, I think we know that for sure. Um, so when does the first marathon actually happen? Like at what age, what is your first, first experience? And like, how did it go for you? Uh, so I was 39 and I was living in Sacramento and decided to do team and training um, for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And they had coaches. So I figured, okay, well, maybe I can be more successful here. Um, but again, I, I, I didn't go to all the workouts. I didn't, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like the me now versus me then, like I am so determined with running now and, you know, just on my own, if I miss a workout, I'm so upset. So looking back, I'm thinking, God, did I just think I was just going to like phone it in? I, it's so funny to think. Um, but we ended up running in uh, Mont Montana and there was probably 200 people at the most and literally cows, just cows for the first 21 miles. So there was no, and it was back in the day of, you know, the little radios, the little, um, Walkmans. Yeah. So there was no reception. It was all just static. So no crowds, no music, nothing, just nothing. And it was such a lonely, just desolate run. And, but I, I was doing okay up until mile like 21. And then the wall crushed me so hard. <laughs> like I had nothing. I, it was a crawl with vomiting and diarrhea and crawl, vomit, diarrhea, crawl for five miles to the end. We never forget that kind of pain. We really don't. <laughs> hitting hitting the wall now is I'm so terrified. I'm so terrified of that that I am so religious with 
fueling and water and, you know, salt stick. I'm petrified over the wall. And I love when people ask my, I love when people ask if it's real and I'm like, (laughs) Oh yeah, it's real. Yeah. And trust me, you don't really want to go there if you don't have to. Um, and now we have ways to make sure you don't have to. But even even when people know what they're supposed to do, sometimes they just get into a pretty good flow or they're running with a group or maybe they're running behind a pace group and they just really, I don't think it's intentional. You know, they're just feeling the good vibes and you should be feeling, if you've trained well, you should be feeling the good vibes through 15 maybe even 18 miles. But at some point, if you're not getting your fuel in and whatever the hell your fuel is, whether it's Morton gels or it's goo or it's drinks or a combination of all the above, at some point it's going to pay. It's going to pay due and say, you aren't fucking going any further. And if you do, you are going to be in severe pain and I will make you crippled and crawling and and spitting and and vowing to never do another marathon again. And it's just like, it's the humbling element of the, of the run. And, you know, yes, you can look back on it and always retrace it unless you're running, you know, one of those days like we did in Boston with the monsoon or a day where it's like abnormally crazy hot, where it's, you know, 85 degrees or something. You know, if you do get your fueling right, that won't happen to you. Um, you might go out too hard and your pace might suffer a lot, a couple of minutes per mile, but you'll still be running. You won't be in pain. You won't be cramping. You won't be vomiting. So lesson learned, wall smashed into, wall one, Janie, nothing, Ron, zero, wall one, you know, the wall wins. It always wins. Um, and it leaves dents and scars and marks that stay with us for a long time. So whenever you crash into it and smash into it, you'll be forever changed. And then hopefully you'll learn how to take your gels and your fluids at the proper time. Uh, and, you know, I find it funny that you're running with cr- no crowds whatsoever and all cows the whole way, man. I would have been like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. So, you know, kudos to you for finishing and, and pushing well, through. And again, man. again, I didn't know anything. So the me now that has run 30 marathons and has run Boston three times and Berlin and Paris and, you know, New York, Chicago, like the iconic races with the best crowds in the whole world. I look back at that race and I think, oh my God, like I thought that was how they all were. So it's very, it's very funny to look back and just see where, where it all began. Absolutely. And how, how far we've come. And so, you know, in every aspect of our lives, when we, you know, have something to gauge against something else, right? Um, yeah, it's it's very cool. Perspective is a great teacher, for sure. And Absolutely. Uh, it's always easy to look back and be much smarter than when you were in the moment, you know, those that many years earlier, 10, 15, 20, and go like, wait, what was I thinking about? No. Yeah, you weren't thinking about anything. I mean, half the time I still don't think about shit today. So why would I expect myself to have been thinking things through clearly in my mid thirties, right? Well, I think I think what makes me uh, different from other people that say don't run or don't have the drive that I have is that I never considered myself to be dumb. I just did it. Like I just there was no can't. It was just you did it, and in retrospect, I see how dumb I actually was. But at the time, 
<laughs> I was just like, okay, let's go do this, you know, um, which I think is very funny. And I'm sure I do many dumb things today. And if I'm lucky enough to live to 90, I'm sure I'll look back now and say, Jesus, that was dumb. I think um, if we're not doing things that we look back on and don't say, well, what the fuck was I thinking about? Like, then we're not doing it right, man, because we're not, our, we're not living. Yeah. Our biggest explosions, our biggest car wrecks, our biggest car fires, dumpster fires, they're the ones that will always make you smile. They'll be the best stories to tell at a Thanksgiving dinner or New Year's get together or anything else. And, you know, the things where it all goes smoothly and it went according to our plan, it doesn't mean that they're not important milestones in our lives or that we don't, they don't make you smile, but they'll never generate the same emotions as those other experiences will. And I never look back on those things in my life and go, oh man, I wish I didn't do that. Hell no, man. That's where the growth comes from in life. Yeah. I, a funny little side street here. Um, when I got divorced from my husband in Ohio, I moved to Lake Tahoe. Um, we had a, we had a house here. So I just said, okay, well, I'm going out there. My family's out there. I'm going there. So, um, I had always wanted a Range Rover. So I wanted a Range Rover and Briards. They're a French sheepdog. So I land in Lake Tahoe. I go to the Range Rover dealership, get a, get a Range Rover and the license plate. Oh, and I dial up the breeder and order two Briards and walk into the DMV and I order the license plate life number two, life NO2. And I just walked out of there thinking, I am so badass. Here I am, right, for life number two. And again, looking back now, today, at 59, I think I'm on life number nine, right? And yet I was so sure that I was just going to have life number two. I love it. Because at that moment, that was what you dreamed of. It's what you aspire to have, those those things um, to be in that different place physically, it's beautiful. Um, and you wanted some of these items to maybe more or less feel more complete. Things that you wanted around you. We're we're both big dog lovers, and yeah, those are big dogs, by the way. Um, my dog Coco has really never submitted to any other dog in her life because um, she's you know part pit and you know part lab, and she's just feisty as hell. But she doesn't mix it up with other dogs at all. She just really has way less interest in dogs than she does with humans. If she likes you as a human, you know, she's going to be snapping back and forth and doing hip dances and her tail's going. And But other dogs, yeah, she'll she'll hang out with them, but she's not all that interested. But we had a fun encounter with a Briard one time. She just like rolled over on the ground and I was like, what are you doing? And the dog is like, you know, it was so gigantor. I guess she was just like, yeah, I'm not going to mess around with this dog. I'll just like, you know, go into the submit position. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but yeah, we we really don't know where we are. You know, it's not just age, of course. You know, life throws us the curveballs, man. And speaking of curveballs, you were about to get hit with your first major life curveball, right? So this might be a good time to jump into that. So six months after that first marathon... Again, I thought I was invincible. I had just run a marathon. And at the time I was living in Thailand, I was engaged to a Green Beret and we were, he was on a joint task force in Chiang Mai. And so we were living there 
And I wake up one day and I'm taking a shower and I feel this big lump in my boob. And I was like, that was, that wasn't there before. And, um, I, I went to the doctor in Chiang Mai and yeah, it's not a hospital that you, (laughs) that we are used to here. There was blood on the floor and the surgeon say, said, Oh, it, okay. I take out if you want, but it, okay. And I was just like, and he had this like rusty scalpel and I'm like, nah, I'll go back to the States for Christmas and I'll figure this out there. Thank you very much. So I came home and um, sure enough, it was invasive breast cancer. So my world just came screeching to a halt. And um, the Green Berets stayed over there and that wasn't meant to be. And um, I started chemo and radiation and all that stuff. But I walked through the whole thing. I laughed through it. I had great friends that, you know, had cancer as well. It turned out that there was like four of us at a party in August that all were diagnosed within a month apart, three breast cancers and a um, colon cancer. So it was really a weird, weird time that we were all going through chemo together. Um, two, two didn't make it, um, myself and another girlfriend did. Um, but that was, that was wild. That brought me to my knees. I mean, what an experience. So, you know, you're just starting to feel like strong and powerful and getting your life together and, you know, you're in the shower and, you know, you're doing a little self-examination and, um, you know, now we got rusty scalpels and blood on the floor and people saying, we'll take it out for you. Like, you know, you almost have to laugh. I'm sure you might've even laughed at that moment because you got to find humor when you're in these places that are so dark and so scary. And then you come home and um, you're exposed for the first time um, for anybody who hasn't been diagnosed with cancer, hasn't gone through this for like what it's like for somebody going through that experience. And you're, you're kind of become part of this community forever. Um, The caregivers, the practitioners, the nurses that are basically giving you, you know, your chemo treatments, et cetera. Um, All the caregivers that are there to to try to keep you, you know, in a positive state of mind and a state of mind to just like to hang in there, to stay together. But interestingly, you know, you became part of a small group, you know, call them a band of brothers, a band of sisters, four of them, and two of them aren't here with us anymore. So it just shows you right there, like with everything that we have in life, people don't understand how fucking precious life is, man. Listen to Janie's story because you know what? Two of her friends aren't here anymore. So two people she met while she was going through this, you know, 20, um, 28 years ago, 21 years ago. Let's see, wait, 39. Yeah, 20, 20, 20, 20 years ago. Yeah, so so 20 years ago. Um, so two aren't there anymore. I'm sure you guys helped each other out, you know, as you were like going through those treatments, like, what was it like, you know, kind of just talk through that experience of what it was like with them and other people that were important to you, like through that period and how they might've helped you. So I think that the hardest thing was to tell my family that I had cancer. That was, that was the hardest because it just broke, it broke them. I could, I felt like I could handle it. And I just felt so awful breaking them. Um, And I was really 
angry. Like it just, you know, cancer came in and just knocked me down. And I thought, you know, who the fuck are you to knock me down? (laughs) I'm Janie John. Right. And then, and I was like, why, why? And then I thought, well, you know, why not me? I would rather it be me than my mom or my sisters or my brother or my best friends, or I would rather it be me always because I can take, I can handle it. I can handle it. And that was sort of my, my mantra. But um, my one friend, um, she was diagnosed probably a month before me and she was a huge light when I was diagnosed and I had heard that she was going through chemo. And when I reached out to her, it was like, you know, a, 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 a lifeboat in the middle of just horrid seas. Um, and so she gave me that. And so then a month into my treatment, when another girlfriend of mine was diagnosed, I got to be that lifeboat for her. And it just, it keeps rolling. It keeps going like that. And I think the only way we get through it are with those people that have been there before, whether it's, you know, a month before or two years before. Um, and I, that's why I talk about it so much now, because for anyone, you know, I want everyone to know that I've been through it. And if anyone needs a lifeboat, I'll be there in a second. That's wonderful. Um, Listen, if we if we cut ourselves off from that experience, from that part of our life, and we don't share it with others, you know, we're just it's just not it's not paying it forward. Um, and you know, when you're in those darkest spots, I and mean, you said that you felt like you could take it, but you didn't want to break your family. Um, yeah, that that's awful news to share. And you know, there I know some people that have actually gone through it and not even told one of their own brothers or sisters or their moms or dads because they thought they were going to get through it and then it didn't work out. They're not here anymore either. So like, there's just no one knows how to handle this. There's no man, you know, there's no manual written. There's nothing that says here you go, Janie. You know, page thirty-seven. You know, tap in over here from here to here. You'll be good to go by the time you're at page one hundred. There's no manual because. Every single person's life circumstances are different when they get those words. When somebody says, you have cancer, whether it's ovarian cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, it really, it, it only matters in that some of them are truly like, okay, you, you know, better get your affairs in order. Like you pretty much don't have any chance from making it through this, but, or no, like you're going to be okay. We're going to tackle this this way and we're going to handle it. So do you think the harder was it easier for you to have the conversations on what you were going through with your emotions, with the people in your group, that small group that you had and, and, and within the hospitals themselves, the people giving you chemo, treating you inside the walls of the hospital and you kept it, those emotions and feelings away from your siblings, from your mom and dad and your family because you didn't want them to become too scared or afraid? Um, I... I was very close with my surgeon and I was very close with my friends going through it. I, I kept some of the horrors away from my family as much as I could. Um, and other things they couldn't, you know, relate to like, you know, hair falling out everywhere. And, you know, the girls going through it, we'd compare what hair was falling out when, and, you know, it just kind of, it was, it was 
it was gallows humor to the to the max. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you have a bond that you know you talk about you know the mouth sores and the you know just all the bullshit that comes with you know chemo and radiation um, that no one can really understand and and you know I I don't like being I don't like people feeling sorry for me so I never. I was alone. I was, I would take chemo and then I would go home. And usually my mom or my aunt um, would stay with me that one night, but that was it. And I just, I, I was very mission focused, right? I'm going to live. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get through this and get to the other side. Um, so I don't know, but there was a very funny story. My first my first, um, no, it wasn't my first chemo. I had lost all my hair. I was bald. It was probably my second round. Um, the oncologist had said that the Miss America was coming to um, Sutter Cancer Center. And her platform was breast cancer. And she wanted to meet with a, some breast cancer patients, survivors, whatever. And they asked me if I would you know, go with some other women to do that. So I said, sure. So I'm sitting in this room and I'm thinking, Oh my God, I've wanted that crown. I've wanted to be Miss America for 39 years. And this is like the closest I'm ever going to be. And you know, the Miss America starts talking and she's like, the first thing everybody wants to know or wants to see is my crown. So she, she pulls out this big wooden box and she goes like this and she's showing the crown and she's coming around really close. And as she's coming around towards me, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is my only chance to ever get that fucking crown on my head. And she can't say no to this, you know, sickly looking cancer patient. So she gets to me and I said, um, do you think that I could put it on? And she just like was her eyes got super huge. And again, she couldn't say no. And the media is all there. And so she gets it out of the box and she puts it on my head. And I do like the whole Miss America crowning thing. And the, the photographers and the media just went nuts. And they wanted me to reenact it. And it was, it was very special. It was a very special time. That's such a cool story. Um, and it's nice that she was going out into the hospital community and meeting with breast cancer patients and doing something, you know, community-based um, because we, we need more of that. And we need hope, man, when we're in a dark place like that, um, you know, and, and whatever the hell it is that can get you focused on the forest through the trees, because at every single moment, it's like, I have another chemo treatment. Um, I'm going to throw up again. I'm going to be sick again. This is going to happen again. And it's just a spiral of going down into like a black hole. And if your focus was so, you know, I have to get through it, I have to make it through it. You have a very strong, you know, mental outlook and you have very strong mindset. Um, and of course that serves all runners well. Um, but it serves us well in all of our lives, obviously not just in running, which is why my show is long format and we talk a long ways off of running because it's what we do in our careers and outside of our running 
were the habits that we've ingrained in ourselves and instilled in ourselves that we just don't fucking quit. We don't give up. We don't back down. We always figure out there's another way forward. There's another way around. There's another way under. There's just always a way if you're willing to to keep grinding, to keep working, you know, to stay in the fight, like the sign says behind me. Um, so man, it's, um, it's amazing. There's no option. You stay, you stay in the fight or you die. That, I mean, that's, that's it. Yeah. But let's be honest, Janie, you stayed in the fight and you are with us. There are people who give up and they, for a lot of reasons, and I'm not that's not being judgmental. That's just a fact. Maybe they don't have any family that's close to them and they feel cut off, or maybe they just feel like I don't have anywhere to go from here, or I've been through too much suffering and I just don't want to fight anymore. And, you know, I'm just saying that that is a real part of, you know, why cancer does win sometimes in the end, because people are just not willing to stay in there. And it's, it's awful, man. It's brutal in a way that you can describe. You've been through it. Not me. You know, I didn't have to throw up in buckets. I didn't have my hair fall out. I didn't wonder if I was ever going to have a day when I'd feel normal again. You know, so those are things that anybody in your shoes has been through. It's all, I think it's all a part of the journey, right? I, I think that some people, my friends that passed away, I, they, their, their journey was very important and they didn't give up either, but their, their, their path was different and their contribution to this world was different. Um, and they made a huge, they made a huge difference in a short amount of time, but they stayed in the fight until the very, very end. You know, I, I, I don't want to come across saying they gave up. Well, God bless. And that's really well said. Um, because we don't know how much time we have. None of us do. We, none of us do. Um, we could all be gone tomorrow, this afternoon, you know, next week. We really just don't know. Um, and, you know, that was their journey, as you said, beautifully. So that was their journey at that moment. And they were also part of your journey. They were part of other people that they met, you know, since they were diagnosed, their doctors, their caregivers, their family members. And that's the thing. That's why when I hear people say they don't want to run Boston for a charity or they don't want to do this stuff, I just want to like smash them in the face. I want to hit them with something. I'm like, you know what, man, do something for someone else once in your life. Okay. Put your freaking ego away and realize just because you've never been diagnosed with cancer, somebody you know has run for American Cancer Society, run for leukemia, run for Hodgkin's, run for the myriad of cancer groups that are out there and raise some money and help some people and put some some continuity behind your run, put some real depth behind it. Um, that'll help you get through a training cycle. That'll help you get out there on the coldest days, the rainiest days, the shittiest days. And you know when you put their names on your back or on your arm or on your shirt and you're out there running or on your sneakers, you know it'll add a lot more meaning to, your, to that run, to that day, um, to, that, to that event than just doing it because you can get in the race. Yeah. So let's fast forward. You come out, you make it out the other side. I mean, did you ever have any moments in there where you were like, it's not looking good or you just made your way through chemo? The prognosis was good. Like, you know, as far as the journey there, like the first time through, I mean, how did, how did it progress until you made it through to the other side? Uh, there were, there were hiccups, but you know, nothing, nothing huge. And I, I had actually started, I, 
I'm an interior designer. So I was where I have other clients. And when this all went down, I, you know, told my clients, I can't, you know, work for you anymore, but it didn't stop me. I decided to gut my house and remodel it during chemo and radiation. And, you know, my mindset was, I don't care. I don't care how much it costs. I may be dead. I don't care. And so I remember about, uh, I was probably halfway through radiation. I thought, Hmm, I'm going to live. I guess I better start looking at numbers, (laughs) but it was, it was a terrific project and it kept me from, you know, focusing too much on being sick because I knew that I had to get well because I had to go design cabinets. I had to go pick cabinets. I had to go, you know, I had to do all that stuff. I had to keep the ball rolling. So it really kept me focused. And, um, I had named, I always named my houses. My mom named our houses. And so I had started naming the houses too. And it was on Swanston Drive. And so I had named it Swansong Cottage because I didn't know if that was going to be my last house to do. And um, it ended up not being, and I moved on several times and, um, but it was just, it was very, um, significant, you know, doing the remodel and coming out and having Swansong Cottage. And then my business became the Swan's Nest. And that was, you know, the trajectory of all of that was just shot to the moon after I came out of all this. Well, that's a great story you shared because for anybody who might be going through it right now, who's been diagnosed with any kind of cancer, you know, like if the only time you have when you're not in treatment is spent looking at, oh my God, how am I going to get through this? Or, oh my God, how am I going to deal with this or that? You know, it can become, there's just such negative emotions and it's such a roller coaster of of darkness, of, you know, thinking it's not going to end and how am I going to get through it? And am I going to have enough money to pay for these treatments and all of these things that can just drain you if everything else in your life was perfect, which it is certainly never going to be as you're going through this roller coaster of physically exhaustive, you know, treatments that are beating the living hell out of your body and killing off parts of your body and your immune system and all of the shit that goes with it. There's a reason why your hair falls out, people, okay? (laughs) Like, this shit's poison, okay? (laughs) Like, but you needed to survive, right? So you put such a focus on something that mattered to you. You know, you may not have thought of it at that moment, but maybe it was going to be the last thing you ever did, like your last house, but it would be there after you were gone. You know, like, it was going to survive time. I was going to leave a mark one way or another. Yeah. So, so wonderful. And thanks for sharing that because for anybody who's going through it or might be going through it or know someone who's going through it, this is just good advice to share. It's practical advice because it, it, this had nothing to do with running. This was Janie's other passion in life, what she does for a living and her design business with homes and, and creating unique spaces and, and that fit with the land and the space. And just, um, I've seen pictures of one of your homes that was magnificent. I remember seeing it. It was beautiful. I don't remember which one it was, but I definitely remember seeing it going like, wow, seriously talented. Um, Beautiful, beautiful work. Amazing work. Um, But yeah, if our minds are allowed to drift into that abyss, we're not, you know, we might make it, but we might be so 
permanently damaged from it or so scarred. So, but you you shifted your focus to something outside of what was happening with you in your physical and your mental, emotional battle to something else. Well, I never felt sorry for myself. I I would get up. I would get up and, you know, I would just do it. And I think that I didn't know I had a runner's personality, but all of that, all of that led to beginning to run and, you know, thinking, you know, this, this, there's no, there's no ceiling. There's no ceiling any anymore. Right. What's the, I've been through the worst. What, 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 what's going to happen to me? <laughs> I'm going to die. I mean, that almost happened. So, um, yeah, it just gave me such a freedom to experience life and explore the possibilities without thinking that failure was not there's there regardless of how you end up there's no failure and so it really really freed me up both you know with work with running with everything it was all possible it's it's such an amazing perspective that only someone can have who's faced it the way you have or you know been in that situation you know from the time you're diagnosed and you're they say the big C word and then it all starts from there. But to come through it, you know, unless you've faced your own mortality in life and actually knew like, hey, I might not wake up tomorrow. I may not wake up as the anesthesiologist is counting backwards with you and they're pulling the mask over your table. Like you remember anybody who's ever had a surgery it doesn't have to be for cancer or maybe the chance that you might not make it through to the other side. Like you always know, you know, when they start counting down with you, like you don't know if you're going to come back from the other side, because there's been plenty of people in this world have gone in for a routine surgery, the key word being routine and, you know, had a reaction to anesthesia or any other thing that can happen on the table. And then they're not with us anymore. So um, the viewpoint you have of anybody who's come out of facing something like that down, um, that's what I've heard from everyone of my friends who've been through it, you know, that they've felt more free, they're willing to take more risks, um, and they're not going to let some of the shit drag them down into the dirt, you know, before that used to, or would drive them crazy. They're just like, I don't have time for this fucking shit. That's it. Sorry. No time for it. Can't deal with it. Or maybe cut certain people out of their life that maybe were having that kind of effect on them and just had to make new choices because you have to change gears and you have to change things, man, because in in many sense, in many sense, it's kind of like a rebirth, right? You're starting over. Yeah. And I think the first, so, so each year after, you know, I got through that, I think, you know, maybe the first five were rough, right? Because every pain, every headache, every, you know, eye twitch, you're like, oh my God, you know, it's back, it's back. Um, but after maybe five years, you know, it kind of lessens and, you know, when you're in that five-year period, you think, oh, my God, am I ever not going to think about this? And will I ever be able to go a couple hours without thinking I have cancer again? And then one day you're like, oh, my God, I haven't thought about it for a whole day. And then it becomes a whole week. And then you're just on. You're on with your life. And I think, you know, I started um, when I started running again. Um, I would make these, you know, goals. Okay, you're going to run 
you know, I would just make these weird things. See, let's see how many half marathons you can run every single weekend. How many, you know, um, I, I, I kept to make me feel stronger, to make me feel more invincible, to push against, you know, this invisible ceiling, you know, like how far can I go? Right. Like how far can I go? And, um, I, I mean, that's how it sort of all began with my, you know, the last, what, six years of, of running. Um, and I think 2017, it was new year's Eve. And I was thinking, Hmm, I think I'll run a marathon a month in 2017. And so I did with the exception of one month that I got the flu and had to do two marathons in September. But, um, but it's like all that stuff just kept, I kept doing it. And, you know, the, the belief in me and what I could achieve was just, it kept, you know, just, it was like a snowball. So you, you came out stronger on the other side and, you know, but going back to running in a very different manner, like attacking it with way more vigor and piling more on. Yeah. You want to prove to yourself that you could be as strong on the outside, you know, physically strength, muscles, legs, heart, all that stuff as you were on the inside mentally, you know, with the battle that you made it through. So it makes perfect sense to me, you know, running one a month. Why not, man? That's, that's my kind of thing, you know, pile it on, man. The more, the merrier do as much work as possible. And uh, try to make yourself unbreakable, man. It's Goggin style yeah. all the way, man. You know, oh. you know, no fear. Take the shit on and just stay after it. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is um, if you're doing it right, and a lot of people are, but a lot of people aren't. Um, just because one person can run a marathon every month or every week even, or maybe even every couple of days doesn't mean everybody can, you know, everybody's running form is different. Everybody's mechanics are different. Some people have a leg that's six inches longer than the other. I mean, man, it's not fair. The universe is never fair. You're not supposed to get cancer. You know, other people aren't supposed to get it either. Babies aren't supposed to get it, but it happens. That's life where we get what we get and we handle what we can, right? But everybody's bodies aren't really made for running, or at least not distance running, okay? So I'm blessed with a body that is made for distance running. I can run a lot of miles, and I can run marathons and ultras. Other people want to try to follow that path, they're going to end up broken. So, you know, you got to figure out, you know, what is your body good at, right? And what can it handle, and in your case, we know you came out the other side of your cancer journey, but now you're running a marathon a month and you ran two in September because you had the flu. So you're getting stronger. I mean, are you, can you feel it in all of your runs, your pace, your efforts? Like, or is it just like more mental? Um, I, primarily it was mental, but I mean, I was getting, I was getting faster. I was getting more determined I, you know, thought, oh my God, maybe Boston, maybe I could qualify for Boston. And so once I made that decision, I did. Right. It was, I remember a boyfriend asking me, like, he, he said, would you consider running the majors? And I was like, eh, I don't know. Right. I just sort of blew it off because I didn't, I didn't understand the significance and I didn't, 
it wasn't something I thought of. Right. And so once I thought about it and I thought, well, yeah, why wouldn't I? Okay. And so I qualified at CIM that year. Nice. And that was your first time qualifying for Boston, right? Yeah. Awesome. So 2018 is the monsoon year. Oh, yeah. I was very happy that that was my first year because I didn't know any different. I didn't, I didn't realize that people were dropping like flies and going to the hospital. And I mean, that was, I, I was, I was freezing. I had to stop. I, I, for some reason I threw away my poncho at the beginning of the race. And so I was running in this North face fleece jacket that was literally frozen hard. I could crack it at mile 15. And so um, I stopped for about 10 minutes and threw that off. And some nice man had ponchos, right? A lot of people had ponchos along the way. And the spectators were so wonderful. And he gave me a poncho and it it saved me. But I, I had trained for a 340 and I ran a 404 in the monsoon. So I was really stoked about that. Yeah, that was a day that's forged in... We're all forged in that one together, any of us that made it through. And I feel worse for my friends who didn't make it through because they certainly wanted to. It's not like they punched out and said, I don't want to do this. You know, it was either hypothermia or they just got pulled off the course or any number of different things, you know, that happened to them. And I think every one of us learned about what the what the difference is between a quality Cortex rain jacket on that day versus, like you said, every one of us wearing the wrong things and, you know, just, just no idea. Literally, you don't know. I mean, I don't think anyone has ever tried to run a marathon all 26 miles in 20 to 30 mile an hour headwinds the entire way, by the way, every step, because it only goes in that one direction, you know, in, in that particular year. I mean, the course is going in that direction. So the direction of the wind was coming straight at us the whole day. And I think we got an inch and a half or two inches of rain, which is completely bananas. And when you factor in what the real wind chill was, it's it's kind of shocking that people weren't more damaged. You know, I mean, right. it just shows you how determined runners actually are and of course they have the best damn volunteers and organization and oh support people all out- yeah because if they weren't out there doing what they were doing you know getting us to dry off temporarily and you're shedding a layer and somebody's giving you a poncho like you say there are angels that are out there in the course if they're not out there doing those things you don't finish and if you don't finish you know, maybe your whole trajectory changes. Maybe we're not even talking today. Like who knows? You just, no one knows how one event like that can change everything. But I just remember, you know, uh, gloves falling off my hands because I try to take a gel out and, you know, I couldn't open the gel because my hands were just going like this. And, you know, it's like, you know, I can't do this. I can't do this. And, you know, God knows why I wouldn't have just thought, okay, stop. For two seconds on this side of the fucking road. No, 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 no. There's no way I could stop. That would be completely out of the question. God forbid I actually would have stopped for a second and just like maybe taken the gloves off while I wasn't running and like cracked open the gel and eaten the gel because I think my hypothermia was way more caused by not getting enough fuel in to almost getting no fuel in because the look, there just wasn't the cups were blown over at all the aid stations. You know, it's not a course where people carry a hydration pack or anything like that. So you, you know, you're thinking you don't need it. You need fueling every bit as much on a frozen course, as much as you do on a hot course. And I think that's where we all 
suffered as it got later. And, you know, like, I mean, I mean, at one point, like, I just didn't even know what I was doing. You know, I was like, threw my hat off at one point because I thought it was so soaked from the cold that that was actually, you know, hurting me. But then, you know, 20 seconds later, you know, my head is like numb and I'm like, oh yeah, another brilliant choice, Ron. What else you got in store for us today? You know, but I don't think we can think clearly when, you know, we have hypothermia and shit is going on, right? Yeah. I decided to throw my poncho off three miles from the finish line because I was going to, you know, I thought it was letting up and that I was going to fly. And this, as soon as I threw it and the wind took it and, you know, threw it back to Hopkinton, um, the sky opened up and there was, I was like, oh my God, bad timing, bad timing. But that's one of those events in life that it's like your whole, your perspective changes so completely on what a bad run is or a hard run, right? Like all of us that run 2018 now have that. Well, and for anything, like I I wear that 2018 jacket for things I need to be brave for. So well said, because for the rest of our lives, and I'm way outside of running, you're hundred percent. You're like, if I can do this, complete the sentence, you don't need to complete the sentence. If I can do that, I can do anything or I can endure anything. I can survive anything because it's the truth. I mean, and the will and spirit that was out there that day, um, was really something to behold. And, um, I, I made a book called the perfect storm and, um, it was filled with uh, training pictures leading up to the race, the race day itself, and ha- also had pictures, you know, mostly my pictures, of course, because it's my book. But I have elites in there, de- pictures of Des Linden in there, and Shalane, and and Molly Huddle, and and many, many, many other elites. Um, and uh, Meb and Des signed it, and pretty much every running friend of mine who I know ran there has signed it. So whenever we're going to be in the next place together, you'll have to sign it because. It'll be like a yearbook for me some someday in my life that I'll pull out and be like way more valuable to me than a yearbook because the little notes people wrote me in that book are really awesome, you know, and it's something to preserve, preserve that memory. So um, fast forwarding after Boston, you had your fastest marathon in LA, right? 20, March, 2020. Yep. Run 347. So things are rolling. You're you're really starting to head in a crazy positive yeah. direction. And that yeah. kind of leads us right into the next chapter. Yep. So that was March 8th, I think, was, was LA. And the world came to a screeching halt. What was it the 13th or was it the was it the 13th? I, I think, think it was right after. You you it was LA was the last US based marathon. Or um, yeah. it's the, or the women's Olympic trials in Atlanta because I was supposed to go to Tokyo. I was getting on the plane for Tokyo the next day to go get my second six star. It got canceled, and then I heard from a bunch of friends they were going to Atlanta for the trials, and I'm like, I'm in for that. I'll go down and I'll hang out and I'll watch the badass men and women rip the trials. So, but LA was the last like full marathon that was open to you know the regular folk like us. And I can't, I just don't remember if your race was after Atlanta or Atlanta was after you, but they were within, I think they were the same weekend, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't, but. And then COVID. And COVID. And yeah, that, well, (laughs) I don't don't even have words for COVID. Um, 
yeah, that was crazy. It was very hard to, it was very hard to keep running. Very, very hard. Um, right. Cause we didn't know we, we didn't know the Boston was canceled until maybe end of March. Right. They, they drew, they, they drug it out for a while. Um, and then everything started to fall. Um, so in addition to COVID, I was supposed to have a mammogram. I think it was in early March and everything got canceled. Right. So they started not early March. It was after the marathon, but it was soon thereafter. And the hospital called and they said, you know, we're rescheduling everything. We don't know when we don't, you know, blah, 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 blah. So um, it was rescheduled for late May when, you know, they started opening things up again. And, um, you know, I wasn't, I had thought about a reoccurrence, you know, briefly. And I thought, well, I'll just smash through it. Like I did the first one. And it's not going to, it's not going to stop me. And um, so middle of May went in and immediately they're like, yeah, we, there's a problem. So, um, through June scans, testing, all of that, um, you know, and I'm still working, I'm still running. I'm still saying, fuck you, cancer. You're not taking me down. You're not. And, um, you know, that was sort of my, my mindset, no matter what it is or what I have to do, I'm getting through this. And um, ended up that I needed to have a double mastectomy, and um, you know there were no there were no options. And so July 14th, which was my 59th birthday, go in for surgery wearing my 2018 jacket because I think nothing is going to be as hard. And you know this jacket makes me brave. And I went in there and. Whoever it is who runs the universe took that jacket, wadded it up and said, hold my beer because you're going to die on the table and we are going to have to save you. So I woke up with my boobs still intact and I was in the ICU and I had um, I had gone into anaphylaxic shock from isosulfan blue dye, which I was apparently terribly allergic to and they had started cutting off my right boob and they had to literally slap it back on and save my life and I ended up waking up in ICU my head was the size of a pumpkin from all the shit they had to pump me full of Um, I had wires and tubes everywhere and so I remember waking up looking down I still had boobs and I'm thinking what, what is happening? What, what is happening? And the surgeon came in and she's rubbing my arm and she's like, we had to take a little break. And I'm like, what is that? You know, I'm just kind of out of it, but I'm thinking, you know, I'm saying to her, what does that mean? When are we going back? Right? Because once I made the decision that my boobs are gone, they need to be gone. And I need to get through this. I need to just have them gone. Right. It's like ripping off a bandaid get them off, get them off me. And so she says, Oh no, you don't understand. We're not going back in for a while. And I'm like, Oh, what does that mean? A while? 
And she's like, we need to figure out what caused this. So um, it was crazy. It was crazy. And my older sister had flown out from Michigan and she was landing as this whole thing was happening and got a message on her cell phone that there had been complications in the OR. So my mom, you know, my mom has a flip phone that she doesn't use. So she was in incommunicado. So my sister is coming down the escalator and she's like, we got to go. You know, and my mom's like, what's happening? Um, So when I woke up, my sister had come in and, you know, was laying over me. And I was just like, (laughs) it took me hours. It took me hours to piece it all together to understand um, that, yeah, they called halted the whole surgery. Um, and now I was going to have, they didn't know, they didn't know at the time that it was the isosulfa blue dye. Um, and I was going to have to go get tested before they would ever put me back on the table. What an experience. I mean, that's just, that's as close as you can come to being checking out of the universe, man. And, <laughs> and your boobs are still there. Like, wait a minute, this isn't what was supposed to happen. And oh my God, you know, your mom has the old style flip phone. That's like my mom, you know, you know, your sister's getting alerts, something happened. Yeah. I'm sure that's just what she wants to read. Complications in the OR. Like she's probably running right. in there with a meat cleaver. Like, what did you do to my fucking sister? Where is she? Like, I oh, mean, yeah. this is just so much stress. My God, I'm getting stressed about it. And I know you're okay. Cause I'm talking to you right now, but Oh my God. And then you, you're waking up. You got to have like 9 million chemicals pumping through you to try to counteract the shock your system went into from anaphylactic shock. And you know, you're got to be like completely six sheets to the wind and a surgeon's rubbing your arm going, Oh yeah, we can't finish this up, man. I mean, so that had to be just as bad a mental, you know, mind F as you could possibly endure. Totally. Um, and yeah, the fact that they didn't know, they didn't know why I crashed. Right. And so I, I didn't grasp that for a couple days. Right. Like I didn't understand that, that they were going to have to test me with a lot of drugs to figure out, you know, what happened in there um, before I would ever be able to go back on the table. Cause I'm like, let's do this. Let's do this. But we got to get it done. And, um, but, but, the good the the silver lining to that was my sister laid over me crying, promising me that we would run Boston together and she was going to qualify. And she had tried qualifying, I don't know, probably eight or nine times and she hadn't been able to do it. And so that she did it. She made a promise and she did it. So that silver lining there. That's awesome. I mean, I, I always make deals with the devil. I don't know why we say they're deals with the devil. They could just easily be deals with God that, you know, when I'm running an altar or something, I'll be like, you know, please just let me make it through the last 12 miles of this 50 miler that I really have no business being out here for. And I know it's my fault, but, you know, just help me make it through another 12 miles somehow, you know, like, you know, we could do this thing. Right. But like, how amazing is that? You know? So she's like a pack, the sister pack, like we're going to qualify. She's never qualified. You know, that's when you know how raw and just unbelievable the experience is that, you know, when you realize how precious life is in that moment that, you know, you could have been gone, man. They could have gone just a couple of more degrees offline and you're not there anymore. You know, you're not here with us today. And um, 
And obviously they can't put you back on the table because they have to get to the bottom of it. They have to understand what's going on. I mean, it could be, who knows how many other things, you know, that it could have been, but there's no point in trying to name them all. It doesn't matter if it's one or if it's a hundred, unless they know what it is, they can't safely put you back there. So, you know, you want to get this done now, you know, you need to get it done and you can't even get it done. Right. So, um, you know, and I didn't realize how afraid I was, you know, what, once I started processing all this, okay, yeah, test me, but I'm still scared as shit to get back on the table, but I have to get back on the table, right? Like getting back on a fucking horse. That, that, that was, um, I was facing some serious fear there going back in. And again, I think it was harder on my family. Not that it was easy for me, but at least I made the decision. They just watched, right? They watched me disappear behind the doors again and just prayed that they weren't going to get an alert on their phone that, you know, we have a complication. (laughs) Yeah. Well, ultimately it has to be your decision or, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're married, you have kids, all those things factor in, but still the person that has what's going on has to be the one that makes the decision, you know, whether it's a brain tumor or something else, they're going to decide whether they're going to try to get this repaired or a tumor removed or a cancer taken out. And the rest of the family has to go along. I mean, they've got to be there to support whatever that decision is. Right. But again, I think it's harder on them because they have no control. Right. When, you know, me going through chemo and radiation the first time, I, you know, I was making that decision. I was, you know, in that treatment and they, again, just had to watch. So again, I just think it's harder for the people that love us to witness these, you know, these traumatic, traumatic events. I think you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, But as the saying goes, but that's what family is for. That's what we that's what our family is. I mean, if if they're not going to be there in the crisis in life, then what else are you really together for? I mean, that's what families do in a crisis. They huddle, they come together. And maybe it isn't the whole family. It doesn't need to be the whole family. It can be one person out of five. It can be, you know, four out of 20. It doesn't matter how many. You just need a couple alongside you that make you feel grounded and safe and secure and that you're making the right decision and that, you know, this is what's best for Janie. And, you know, we're, we're here, we're here, even if it sucks. And even if they're hurting, they're still there, you know, yeah, ready, hoping for no alerts, like you said, or any other shit or any other blue dye reaction, anaphylactic shock, whatever. So a couple of months later, they finally get it sorted. And, uh, oh, and by the way, I forgot that surgery was on your birthday. Sorry. Yeah, it was three weeks. Um, it was three weeks from the first surgery to the second surgery. And um, I was, so they weren't going to, insurance was not going to approve me getting some blue dye. The blue dye was like $1,200 a vial. And they wouldn't approve getting it to test me. And yet, you know, I, prior to the surgery, I had been, um, for the biopsies and for some other things with my boob, I had been put to sleep. I was, I was under anesthetic. So, you know, in my mind, I'm like, it's the blue dye. That's the only thing that was different. And yet, you know, insurance is saying we can't, we can't test you for that. 
And so the um, allergist, I think that's what he's called, the guy that, yeah, the allergy um, doctor, he said, you know, I've arranged, if you can, pay for the blue dye yourself. And, you know, we'll try to get you reimbursed later, but this is the only way it's going to happen. So, you know, for people that don't have $1,200 to lay out, it would be a very, very hard, hard decision. Um, but I was able to, you know, get the vial and they only needed a little teeny tiny bit to test me. So a year later, um, and this was just a couple of months ago, they got approved to do a study from UNR. They still had my vial and proved that the vial lasts a year at least. Um, and so operating rooms can now hold the vial because they don't use a whole vial to, to shoot into the tumor bed. Um, so I might have saved women's lives now because now they know they can use the isosulfan blue dye and save it to test on someone before they knock them out and inject the whole, you know, syringe. So that makes me very happy. Well, that's a, that's a shitty story that became a great story. Um, because you know, our healthcare system, as we know, is, is fucking broken, um, like many things. Um, but it's just a, these are just the drawbacks. We have a lot of great benefits of living in our country as we know, but we have a lot of broken things, but that's one of them. But yeah, it should just be like, yep. Yeah. She's allergic to that one. We're going to use this one. Yeah. It's okay. No, no, we're not going to, we're not going to allow it or better yet. Maybe I'll tell you, you're not going to pay for your surgery altogether, but thank God. Um, and as a rough a day as it was on your birthday for that first surgery, maybe the Boston jacket saved you in the end. Who knows? We will never really know. But I know one thing I'd be putting that sucker on every time, you know, that I had to go in there for something, something difficult. And, you know, now that I think about it, if I have any crazy shit coming up for myself, I'll throw mine on too. I got one right, right in the front hall closet. So always ready, always ready to break out a Boston jacket when needed. And if you're going to break one out, why not break that one out? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So... End of the story is I, they did reconstruction. Um, they, I got the double mastectomy. They did reconstruction, put expanders in. Um, the expander, I had the expanders for, I don't know, from August to November. Um, but in September with the expanders, I ran the virtual Boston on my treadmill 38 days after that first, that second surgery. So that was a huge, that was a huge milestone for me. Um, and again, another big F you to cancer. Um, and so after that, one of the expanders went flat. So I had one boob and one no boob. And so no, in November, they put in the silic silicone implants and, you know, I was very leery of the silicone implants, but the doc, the plastic surgeon was like, oh no, these are totally different. These, you know, here's half of one. Look, here's a cut one. See how it doesn't leak. It can't leak. It can't, you know, and, you know, in the moment you're just, I, I am so focused on the end. Let's just get up this over with. Okay. Those are fine. Stick them in. Let me get on with my life. Right. And so November, I go in and get, they call it the exchange. And um, probably 
three weeks later, um, symptoms start showing up like weird symptoms like fevers and um, brain fog and depression and um, and they just kept getting worse and worse and worse joint pain like my joints my wrists my ankles my shoulders my hips um, you know and I just thought oh my god is this what life is going to be like and it was ter- it was terrible. It was terrible, horrible. I remember last Thanksgiving breaking down to a girlfriend, just going, "I don't really think I can live anymore. I don't. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, this is the, what what life is looking like." And um, it turns out that um, there was a day in January that was so dark and so um, so terrible that I actually thought of driving my car off a cliff and just ending it all because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't run. I couldn't, there was no me left. I I wasn't, it wasn't me anymore. And, um, I didn't drive off a cliff because I had my three dogs with me and I walked in the door, just bawling my eyes out, opened you know, my little iPad and went on Facebook to see the Boston Buddies group, which gave me so much light and strength, you know, during, you know, the whole time from, from diagnosis to, you know, this, this moment. And one of the girls on her own page um, had posted that she had just had her implants taken out due to breast implant illness and started listing all the, um, all the symptoms and all her problems. And I was like, Oh my God, it's what I have. So maybe two weeks later, I had them out and I'm as flat as the board now. Um, but that saved my life that I was horribly allergic to those implants and they were terrible, 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 terrible thing. Well, thankful for a lot in there. Um, a that you, um, you know, your dogs are with you on that drive because I know how close you are with them. So they probably, if they weren't there, who knows? You know, nobody knows when we're in those dark spots. You know what we will or won't do um, because um, the emotions are so powerful. And you know, you've been through so much, man. You've been through so many incredibly difficult situations, you know, and you're, you know, you're trying to make your way through and you're just trying to get your feet back on the ground and you're trying to feel like yourself again, and you're not anything like yourself again. And a lot of this is all due to, you know, what's in your body and the reaction to your body. And I, I know who you're speaking of because, um, we're friends on Facebook also. And I remember reading about her situation there and, and, you know, look, man, it's not really a shock you know, we're putting things into our body, you know, anything that we put into our body, you know, can potentially have an outcome from Advil, Aleve and anything on down. So, and then when we're putting physical things inside of ourselves, I mean, I had mesh put inside me for a hernia and I specifically remember telling the doctor, what do you mean you're going to put mesh in there? I'm not some 90 year old person. I'm like 6% body fat. I'm like, an elite runner, like I don't need, well, it's not for you. It's for the insurance company. It's a safeguard that, you know, like, you know, some study shows that 77% of all people who get hernia will have to have a second or even a third procedure. And if that mesh isn't in there, the odds are they go up to like 90 some percent. So yeah, they put the mesh in me. 
and I got pseudomonas, which is like a thousand times more virulent than a staph infection and was in, you know, a special disease, you know, unit. And, you know, I could have died, you know, from a small hernia that really wasn't physically big, like an old school doctor could have sewed it up the old way and just, it would have held, it would have been okay. Um, so anytime they put anything into our bodies, whatever the hell it is, there's always a potential for either our body rejecting it, whether it's another organ or in your case, you know, it's like replacement boobs from your, you know, your double mastectomy. And, you know, thank God you were on that page, you know, thank God they were giving you support, you know, at a really tough time for you. And then that you actually came across that and saw that and read, you know, what she was talking about herself. And she didn't have, she hasn't gone through two cancers like you. So she's just going through it by just having those same material, call it whatever we want to call it. I don't know, silicon, whatever it is, it's in there. But having that reaction um, was a light bulb moment for you. And thank God you took action on it. And how quickly after that, did you start to begin to start feeling normal again or more like yourself? Um, probably four days. Four days and 80% of the, the adverse reactions were gone. Um, there were a couple little lingering things. Um, but yeah, for the most part, physically, I was back to my old self very quickly. But mentally, it kicked the shit out of me. And that was a scratch and claw back to... <laughs> back to me again. <laughs> Girl, you're a fighter, man. We know that. We definitely know that. Anybody who's going to jump on a treadmill 38 days after those surgical experiences and run a virtual Boston Marathon 38 days after, you know, double mastectomy surgery with God knows how many crazy things leading up to the fir from the first surgery, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's warrior status, you know, it's next level badass um, and then, you know, coming out from the other side, you know, getting the, these items removed, clearing your brain frog, depression, all these other things when you're not feeling like yourself, the happy ending component swings back around to Boston, you know, of this year, October 11th, when you got to go run with your sister, right? Yep. Yep. So tell us about that. Cause that's pretty awesome. Um, it was, it was awesome but i i didn't know i was gonna run until about two weeks before because mentally i was still you know i was still doubting i was still not believing in me and i just i was weak and i was um you know i didn't know if i had it in me again and that made me so sad because that you know i i that wasn't me and I started listening to Goggins book. Don't hurt. Can't, can't, can't hurt, hurt me. Right. Yes. And ch literally chapter five, I listened to over and over and over and over and over again. And I finally, it was the, you know, the doubter or the, the critic. Don't let them in the cockpit. Don't let them in the front seat. And I, I went out the weekend before Boston and ran a half marathon. And I literally visualized 
when a thought would come that you can't do this or you're tired or you're, you're something, you know, an excuse maker, I would just literally visualize kicking his ass in the back or, you know, whatever in the back seat. And I'm like, you just stay right there. And I, I had to do that maybe three times during that race. And then I was, I was clear and I thought, okay, I'm no, it was two weeks before Boston. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm running. I'm running no matter what. I'm going to be there for my sister and we're going to start together. And um, this is, you know, this is huge. This is my, this is the Phoenix rising. And I had no, I had zero expectations other than to have a great time, soak in the time with my sister, celebrate her success and just, you know, have fun. And if I had to walk 23 of the 26 miles, then so be it. Um, but I was going to get out there and I was not going to quit. And it was, it was one of the, I want to say easiest, but it doesn't, it, that doesn't like, that's not the right word. It was so effortless. I, the miles just kept like, I would see one and then there was five and then there was 13 and then it was 18 and I wasn't even breathing hard. I wasn't, there was no, it was as if, you know, God was just sort of whispering and pushing me down the course. I mean, it was just, I can't even, I can't even describe it. It was a, it was a spiritual run. That's beautiful. And you got to experience it with your sister. So that's even like double, double bonus. And, um, for her to be there with you and, um, you know, just, it was, it was a special day to be back. Um, certainly it's the first time running Boston in the fall ever in 125 years, but it was still on a Monday. So it was still marathon Monday and the rolling start was so cool. Um, just to take stress and pressure away from everybody to just kind of be able to just go and start whenever you wanted and um, go to the bathroom a little longer, take a few selfies, do whatever you wanted to do. But it just, I wish that some of the bigger races could be more like that. I really do. I think it just made the event so much more fun and so much more special. Um, and not to say that there shouldn't be seatings, there should be. The fastest people should always be starting up front and all that should still continue to take place. But I just think it was a wonderful experience to be able to, if you just weren't feeling like you were ready yet, you wanted to go to the bathroom one more time, you know, you wanted to have a couple more drinks of water or Gatorade or get your, you know, your fuel or your gels organized in your pack or whatever you were going to do before you hit that button and started. I think that made it um, so much more special. And then also most of us hadn't seen each other. I mean, I had just run London the week before. So that was kind of my re-entry to seeing old friends again and, you know, getting on a plane and just traveling, which is just good for my soul and just, you know, makes me a better person in every way, man. When I can get on a plane and travel and go run and do the things I want, I'm happy. Um, and I'm, I'm happy whether I run slow or fast, man. I am. Others aren't. Um, I'm not, my life isn't tied to my times that I run a marathon or a half marathon. It doesn't mean I'm any less hyper-competitive and I'm never going to be less hyper-competitive, but I can enjoy every bit of that experience. Um, whether I'm way further in the back or I'm way further in the front, it, it doesn't take anything away. So I'm so happy that you, you two got to have those moments together and enjoy it. 
and be out there. And also super cool that Goggins came through in the clutch um, because when I was training to run the 60 miles for Tommy Ribs on my 60th birthday, I mean, I I listened to it every day. It was never an option. It was never a choice. No, I mean, I have not only my own podcast to choose from, Rich Roll, other podcasts I like. I just said, no, no, nope. This is literally going to train my brain for whatever the day will throw at me. And guess what? The universe can be fucked up as we know. And you know all about how fucked up the universe can be, girl. The universe served me up the coldest day of the winter here. It was below zero wind chill. It was 25 to 30 mile an hour winds. Um, no rain or moisture to deal with, but I mean, no one would even dream of going out there to run with me. Um, a friend who lives in my building, um, when I made it through my first 24, I ran out to Liberty State Park along the water and then I passed back by my building. I was going to go run up to Fort Lee and go over the George Washington Bridge and then just run down into New York. And whenever I got to 60 miles, stop. Well, all that changed when the wind was blowing so hard. She's like, Ron, if you run across the George Washington Bridge, that's going to be the last time anybody ever sees you. You're going to get blown right off the top of that bridge and you know, you're not going to be around. So, um, you know, like there's just a lot of the people who had said, I'm going to run 10 miles. You know, two people ended up, you know, sharing some miles with me who will who I'll always be forever grateful for. But if I didn't have Goggins, that audiobook, I listened to it probably, I don't know, 20 times, maybe, maybe more than 20 times, because what I was doing is I was running 15 miles every day, you know, because I can be pretty crazy too when I put things out there. I just said, the only way I can really prepare myself and steal myself for running 60 miles in the middle of winter alone in the dark and in the cold with no one out there, no crowds or any people or any aid stations or humans, if I don't make my mind Goggins level, I'm going to crack. I'm never going to finish this thing. There's no way. And I, I picked 15 miles because I knew like 10 miles for me is just not that hard. It's not that far. It's not enough to make me nervous. But by adding five more miles, I quickly realized that, oh my God, in the days when I was really tired, like how long it would take me, I was like, I can't do this again. Well, I ran 15 miles every day in January leading up to my birthday. And I took this crazy hard fall like four days before and my knee was smashed and it ended up that I had a stress fracture in my knee. So I actually ran 60 miles on a stress fractured knee. Um, but without Goggins, and I mean this, sincerely. And I met him, but I did not meet him after this happened. If I meet him an another time, I would tell him. It was because I listened to those stories over and over again. It was because I listened to him doing his duct tape work, getting through the bad water, 135 miles an hour in the heat. His first time trying to qualify for bad water, running around that fucking track when he was taking the Miloplex stuff. <laughs> it was like going in a bathroom in the chair. And it's just like, like it's, it's like a car wreck, but you can't turn away. You have to listen to it. I'm like, I know what he's going to say next. I know the whole chapter, but I listened to it over and over. And let me tell you something. I had no headphones on that 60 mile run. I had no music. I didn't have any company. And that was, it was there. When I needed it, I could go to a chapter, just like you said, about envisioning throwing them in the backseat or throwing them the fuck out of the car. It was all there. It was like the gospel, the front row. I could channel into any of it. And, you know, like I had Advil with me because I knew that my knee was hurting and I knew it was going to hurt. And, you know, when I would take a break to go inside, to go to the bathroom or to go on Facebook Live because no one knew where I was, people were genuinely worried, like, holy shit, dude, are you going to like be okay? <laughs> like, are you going to be all right out there? So I would just like give them like a little bit of an update. And, um, you know, you don't know what you can do until you actually, you know, actually do it. So you running a marathon 38 days after your second crazy surgery, a virtual marathon, and then, you know, getting to close out 
this next chapter by running Boston with your sister, by being out there on the course with crowds, with the volunteers, not in a monsoon, not not wearing a rain slicker and you know a frozen North Face jacket. Um, that is just amazing. I mean, just totally amazing. Yeah, it was it was really special, and I just I you know I've always loved watching the mind work. Well. You know, we run a marathon or, you know, all of us run marathons. I love watching my brain try to trick me into giving up or, you know, just stopping or, you know, the whole, the whole, it's like, it's, it's a movie, your mind and, you know, the thoughts that come by and they try to, you know, literally trick you. And I just, I love, I love that show. I love watching what the mind does. Well, I can't let this episode end without asking because your mindset, your strength, your determination, your will, like all that, it's like front and center of like how I think of you as a person. And I'm quite sure it's how all of your close friends would think of you or characterize you. But like, where do you think that comes from, like, when did you realize that it was such a key part of like who you are as a person, even maybe even before running, you know, became what it is to you today to make it through two bouts of cancer and surgeries and complications and all of these things that life has thrown your way? Like, where do you think that toughness and mental fortitude and strength, where do you think it comes from? My my mom's dad, my grandpa, um, super, super hard worker, um, great, great man. And I, I think I learned my, my work ethic and my drive from him. Um, and I think all the times getting kicked in the teeth sort of honed my skill at, you know, getting up and not, you know, never, never staying down. And, you know, maybe the first couple of times it was very hard to get up. It was very, it took a long time. Right. And with every kick in the teeth, you know, that the universe served up, um, you know, whether it's divorces or cancer or, you know, what, what, whatever it is, you know, um, I, I think I just got stronger and got up faster and knew that I would never stay down. Never. So out of all of that, you know, it's where it comes from, but also clearly it's made you more resilient as well. Um, you know, coming forward, you know, coming through to the other side. So do you have any, before we roll out, uh, before we sign up, do you have any like lessons to share with anybody? Cause I mean, just sharing what you've shared with me for the run chats audience today, I have no doubt will have an enormous impact for anybody who is going through a cancer experience in their family, whether it's affecting them personally or a sibling or a wife or a husband, I have no doubt it's going to have a huge impact for them. But any other like lesson or something you want to share um, with the Run Chats audience before we roll out? I, I Just that, you know, our, our suffering is, is for a reason, right? It's like the It's like the spiritual sandpaper that sort of smooths the rough edges and and builds that resiliency. And so I don't know, I think get used get used to to change, 
and be okay in the moment of suffering because it won't last forever. It won't last, you know, all you have to do is get through the next hour, the next day. And, um, and there's always, always, always a silver lining. There's always good that comes out of the darkest, the darkest moments. It may, it may take you a while to, to find them, but they're always there. You'll always find some little, little glimmer of something. That's all I got. I love it though. What a great message to, uh, to land the plane on, um, and to roll out with, cause it's, it's so positive and, um, it's instructive and I, I know it will help so many, so many of our listeners. So I can't thank you enough, Janie, for coming on and sharing. I mean, it's so damn inspirational, um, to battle the shit that you've been through and to not only be still, still be standing, but more resilient with more resolve and, uh, more excited for your future to see what, uh, what is to come. So look forward to seeing you out there at a race. One of these days where we can actually hang, um, like I said, let's, let's get the Lake Tahoe camp thing going. We'll have to have a little running, a running camp, a little, uh, runner's group thing. We put something together, but thanks so much for coming on and sharing with everybody. And as we roll out of every episode, we tell everybody to keep lacing them up, keep getting out the door and always remember to stay in the fight. Wow. It was such a powerful episode. And I'm so grateful to my friend, Janie, for agreeing to come on Run Chats and share her inspirational story of strength and resilience. And she talked about the lifeboats in the storm and in the chaos in the sea when she was first diagnosed with cancer her first time around and how it made all the difference for her and it helped her through her most difficult moments. And I think by Janie coming on here and sharing her experiences, um, not only in this podcast channel with me and with our listeners, but also on Facebook and in the running community um, broadly and overall, it just really helps to pay it forward and helps others that are in that situation or potentially facing that situation to get some answers on what they're likely going to be facing. What are they going to feel like? How are things going to progress? Um, who do they turn to? And Having someone who's been through that experience can make all the difference. So again, I'm so grateful to Janie. Um, she's such a badass, total warrior. And um, I'm just so proud of her for coming on and sharing all the highs and lows of her experiences um, in the sense of trying to help others. And uh, that's really what it's all about is trying to pay it forward and help other people that may be in that situation. So um, thanks again, Janie for sharing your amazing story. And thanks to everybody who takes the time to listen to Run Chats and share an episode on Instagram or Facebook or write a review on Apple Podcasts. Every one of those steps helps us get new listeners to our channel, helps us build out our platform, and no doubt also helps me get more awesome uh, guests for the show, like Janie, willing to come on and be brave and share everything that they've gone through. Um, so let's just keep rocking it, my friends. And as we say at the end of every episode, keep lacing them up like Janie did. Keep getting out the door and always remember to stay in the fight. Peace out, my friends. <laughs>